All right, Genesis 4 is where we left off. If you want to turn there with me. Last time together we looked at the fall of humanity into sin. Of course, God creating Adam and Eve and putting them there in that paradise of God and giving them a perfect environment and created in their perfection. And yet, of course, as we saw, the serpent, who it tells us it was more cunning than any beast of the field, came in and, and began to tempt uh, and to question the Word of God, to question God's nature, and of course, ultimately uh, brought about deception, whereby Eve was deceived and, of course, partook of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had clearly forbidden them not to partake of. For God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And she partook, and then it says, then gave to Adam, and he then directly transgressed. He wasn't deceived. Adam just blatantly sinned right in the light. He knew the difference between right and wrong. The Bible says she was deceived, but Adam transgressed. So Adam willfully, consciously chose. And, of course, as the acting head of humanity, sin then enters the world as the Bible tells us in Romans 5 through one man and death through sin, and God honored his word, and sin and death came into humanity, and of course the fall then bringing about the conditions that we have in our society today, where we live in a cursed world that's uh, morally corrupt, and because of the sinfulness of humanity, we're born sinful by nature. Uh, Adam could only pass on to humanity that which he had, and that was physical life. Adam lost spiritual life. Remember, as soon as uh, Adam and Eve tell us uh, transgressed against the Lord that instantly their eyes were open they were aware they were naked and it says that the idea is they became ashamed remember they started to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves their guilt and their conscience began to set in and they did what everyone does that wrestles with guilt in their conscience which is that moral judge that God's put inside of every one of us they tried to cover up their shame and cover up their guilt using their own works and they first acts of religion we see in humanity they make their own fig leaves and try and cover themselves but God in his grace lovingly though they're trying to hide themselves from God comes and searches them out and the first time we see uh, the act of God's redemption again it's not Adam seeking God in his sinful condition it's God in his love seeking out Adam who's trying to cover his sin he's trying to hide from God's presence because he realizes he's lost relationship with God and the light has gone out spiritually and God seeks him out he begins to dialogue with him of course giving him a chance to confess and to take ownership of his sin but we saw Adam just making excuses and blame shifting then of course the the curse that we saw God pronounced the inevitable consequences of sin and then interesting as we left off at the end of chapter 3 remember it tells us there in verse 21 that for Adam and his wife, chapter 3, verse 21, it says that Jehovah God made tunics of skin and clothed them. They tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover their own sin and shame in their own works and efforts, as many people do in religious activity. That's the natural inclination of man. And that's really what religious activity is. People try and weigh out their good and their bad in all types of false religions. Or many people, even among the circles of the church, you know, have the idea from what they're taught and the traditions that they were raised in or maybe what a particular church teaches. Well, if you just do these many things and if you follow these rules and these particular rituals and you know, if you do this and do that and you dress a certain way and you don't go to movies or you do this, well, if you do these things and ultimately you kind of weigh out the good and the bad and, and you can atone for your own sins and that's the idea that's conveyed and here we see right from the very beginning that God completely refused and did not accept their own covering for their sin but it says in verse 21 that God made tunics of skin and clothed them in other words God says the only way that now that you are sinful and guilty in my sight that you as a sinful human being can be acceptable in my sight is not if you try and cover your own sin, but if you receive the covering that I provide for your sin. And it says that God refused their religious works and made instead for them 
coverings of his own and clothe them, and of course tunics of skin, which means there you see the first shedding of blood, an innocent substitute, an animal had to die, blood was shed. The Bible ultimately says about the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And of course God already beginning to teach Adam, beginning to teach Eve in this seedbed of the redemptive work of human race, God is already showing them the need for blood to be shed, of course, foreshadowing and pointing to the way that God would need to be approached through sacrifice, through an innocent substitute and the shedding of blood, that that would be how humanity must approach a holy God because of their sinfulness. So God clothes them. And then remember, he unfortunately had to drive them out of Eden because he didn't want them to live perpetually in that sinful condition, partaking of the tree of life. And now as we come to chapter 4, we begin to get this interesting story now of the, the first two children uh, that are born, it seems, of Adam and Eve. Remember, God, when he created Adam and Eve, one of the first commands he gave them was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Well, uh, now we see them fulfilling that. We see them honoring the word of the Lord because it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. So Adam, it says, verse 1, knew Eve, his wife. And of course, that word know there indicates to have sexual relations and thereby she conceived. And to me, very interesting that as the Bible describes, of course, you know, the, the uh, you know, the act of sex and sexual relationship given to a husband and wife in the end of Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, and God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. It's a part of God's design for the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. But here the first time in the Bible we see it actually depicted or, or acted upon in a sense, it seems, uh, as a, a first child is conceived by the husband and by the wife. But the Bible uses the term Adam knew Eve, his wife. The idea there's something about that, certainly for procreation, uh, certainly for you know, other purposes, but there, there's an intimacy, there's a bonding. It's a way whereby a man and a woman in an intimate, monogamous relationship know each other on a level of intimacy in a way that is extremely deep, that is extremely wonderful and, and mystical. And again, it just reminds us all the more that not only is it a bonding experience intended to deepen the, the commitment and the ties of a husband and wife to know each other on a level that no one else knows them, but it's also the reason, again, that we see why it is so destructive for sexual relations to happen outside of the marriage bond. Because what happens is a man and a woman bond and know each other in a deep and an intimate way, in a way that they should not. And it formulates a bond that is destructive and counterproductive when it may not be God's intention for them to be a husband and a wife, and then they bond themselves together because of intimacy, which is intended for a good purpose for a husband and wife to glue them and to bond them. And in a very destructive way, many times couples who have sex outside of the bonds of marriage, they join themselves together by using something in a distorted way that God gives a gift to a husband and a wife, and it becomes a very dangerous thing. So I just find it very interesting that that would be the term. Again, God could have used any term. It's not like God's lacking for words, right? God could have used any term to describe the sexual act, and I find it very interesting. The Hebrew term he uses here translated in the English that the husband knew his wife. Uh, and it says, therefore, they conceived and bore Cain. And, and Cain literally means acquired. And therefore, she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Uh, again, take notice that she, in her conception, gives credit to God for the conception. She recognizes, I have acquired a man, not just for my husband, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She realized that it is God who grants conception. God told Jeremiah in his calling in Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, before you were conceived, before you were in your mother's womb, he says, I knew you. And God knew Jeremiah. God knew that Jeremiah would be a man. God knew the plan of Jeremiah's life, that his calling would be a prophet unto the nations. And again, so important to see conception is something that is granted by God. And therefore should be honored and recognized of that sacred reality. And she here gives testimony, the first 
childbirth we see taking place in the scriptures. The first time conception is described as the result of a husband and wife. She says, I've acquired a man from the Lord. No doubt when she calls him Cain and says, I've acquired a man from the Lord, I think it's a testimony in faith from Eve's perspective that she most likely believes that potentially this is the fulfillment of what God was referring to back in Genesis 3.15 where it seems there is the first indication of a messianic promise that God would bring a Messiah into the world that would resolve the problem of sin and, and the separation that the devil was able to work a wedge with to separate the fellowship between man and God. And I think potentially this is a statement of faith. Now she had no idea that the exact opposite was the case, that this kid was going to raise Cain, no pun intended there, just came out that way, but she had no idea, but she's probably thinking, this is the one. I've acquired the Messiah. God said through my seed that the serpent's head, his authority would be crushed and destroyed and potentially here a statement of faith. Verse 2 says, and then she bore again, and this, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of ground. So you have these two brothers born now, same parents, Cain and Abel. Notice they're from the same gene pool, a very pure gene pool. Okay, you don't even have here again like in a typical uh, uh, conception where you know you have the mother and the father both contributing uh, their chromosomes and genes. You know, 23 from mom, 23 from dad, and yet coming from two different gene pools. My wife and I come from two different families. I was raised in one family separate in that gene pool. She was raised and birthed from this family in that gene pool. And then we take those pools and mix the chemicals together. Look, these are two, the first two kids born. And again, where's Eve? She's from Adam's rib. In essence, Adam married his rib, right? You know, he, he married... So they have the same genes. You can't get a more pure gene pool than what exists right here. In Adam and Eve, the first two created human beings, they weren't born, they were created. These are the first two human births taking place. The first time this has ever been experienced, the conception and pregnancy and the birth process, Adam and Eve were created by God. And here you have these two sons raised in the same home, but distinctly different. One, it says, takes a liking to be a keeper of the sheep, so husbandry, and that was what he did, seemed some sort of a shepherd. Cain, however, was someone who became a tiller of the ground. He took a liking to, to agriculture and to farming and so forth, so occupationally they took on two different activities. What is interesting to see is we notice as we move forward that spiritually they take two distinctly different paths. Now, I point this out to remind you again, this is an incredible testimony to the reality of the free moral agency and the free will choice that God has given to each and every one of us in regards to how we respond spiritually in our lives, how we respond in relationship to God. These two kids could not say, well, if you knew what family I was raised in, it's not like one of them went to public school and the other one went to the most perfect Christian school on the planet, okay? They were both from the same family. There are no schools at this point. Like, well, if you knew what neighborhood I was raised in, he got to be raised in a better neighborhood. Or if you knew what family I was raised in, he got to get raised in a better family. Than I, I understand that our environment can have effects upon us, but at the end of the day... Those things are not the ultimate excuse that we can set before God in relation to why we responded to God individually and personally the way that we did. These two sons had all the same opportunities, same family, same everything, all the way down, as I said, to, to the, the reality of the purity of the gene pool. And yet one chooses to be in right relationship with God and lives in a way that's acceptable before God and approaches God properly. The other takes the exact opposite course, is rebellious, turns against God, and doesn't even seem to have a desire in his heart for repentance, even when God tries to reach out to him and say, look, if you would just do what's right, same opportunity available for you as your brother, but you got to do what's right. You need to humble yourself and be submitted and, and, and walk in obedience and faith to what my word is. And they take two completely different paths. Hey, that's a great reminder for those of us who are parents. 
because you can you can raise the same you know kids and the same and, and give all the same opportunities exposure everything things of God but at the end of the day guess what they have a free will and one may choose to follow Jesus Christ and walk wholeheartedly with him and be dedicated and submit. and the other one may have all the same opportunities all the same exposure everything and may choose to take a completely different course and guess what we have no control over that that is a testimony to the reality of the free will of humanity. We must each make a choice. We all have the same capacity to exercise faith. We all have at the same time the same responsibility to choose what we will do before our maker. And that's something that we can't do for someone else, but we must take responsibility for ourselves. And these two sons are a perfect illustration and testimony. It should free parents from guilt that they often bring upon themselves, especially if you have a child you feel like is deviating and going off course. And at the same time, it's just a reminder that our excuses that many times we try and put forth as a smokescreen before God of why we do live one way or don't live one way, they really fail in the presence of God because Cain and Abel testify it's your choices. You have choices. Both of these sons choose to respond in different ways. Look at verse 3. It says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected, it says, Abel and his offering. Verse 5, But he did not respect Cain and this offering. Now, what you have here is the issue of approaching God on God's terms. That's the bottom line here. Approaching God on God's terms. They both bring an offering. It says that Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And it says the Lord respected. The idea is he had favor upon or he... Uh, you know, he accepted and 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 received Abel's offering, but it says he did not respect that as he had no favor towards, he would not receive the offering that Cain brought. Now, it tells us in Hebrews chapter eleven verse four, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks to us. So here, from the very beginning, Cain and Abel, they're a testimony. They're a testimony of the fact that there is a right way to approach God, and there's a wrong way to approach God. And we are responsible for approaching God on the terms that God prescribes. And it says to us, and I think, you know, people debate, well, well, was it because God wanted a blood sacrifice or was it because Cain's works were the, you know, it was the works of the field and sweat rather than a, just the sacrifice of an animal? And, and, and again, we can try and speculate back and forth. Hebrews 11, I think, clarifies by telling us that it was by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. The bottom line was this, is Abel offered his sacrifice in an attitude of faith. In an attitude of faith, I think, faith towards the word of God. In other words, as Adam and Eve, after the fall, God clothed them with the sacrifices of an innocent animal and blood was shed, somehow attached to that and somehow attached to Adam and Eve still interacting with God, God made it very clear to them, this is the way now that you must approach me as the result of your sin. And I personally believe that, yes, it was attached to blood sacrifice. I, I, I believe that Adam probably on occasion would maybe after dinner go off into the distance and he would take one of the sheep or one of the animals and he would go out and no doubt the sons probably either on occasion maybe went with him or they saw him come back and the blood that was on his garments or on his hands and they realized that he had gone and spent time with God and that blood sacrifice was necessary because, of course, I believe they're all foreshadowed and pointed to all ultimately the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. But clearly God had indicated to Adam and Eve, this is the way I must be approached. You must approach me this way. This is how you must worship. And these two sons understood that. I don't think this was the first time they came in worship. I think they both understood, but what began to happen is 
Abel began to continue to keep having faith and believing what God had said and walked in that continuously, Cain, for whatever reason, in his pride or his rebellion, began to think, well, why, why do I have to approach God that way? I don't want to approach God that way. I'm going to approach God the way I want to approach God. And he wanted to prescribe his own way to approach God. And he wanted to dictate to God the terms whereby he was going to approach God. And tragically, that doesn't work with God. <laughs> you know, and, and today, to this day still, you have people who get you know, in that same thing whereby you try and tell someone, listen, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And the only way to approach God is by believing in faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that you can approach a holy God and you must receive the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. And that's the only way to approach God. And some people don't like that. I'm going to approach God my own way. I, I, I just, no, I, this, I, this is what we've always done and, and, and so I'm going to stick with the traditions of, of my church or, or I'm going to, and, and people want to approach God on their own terms and bring their own sacrifices to God and the bottom line is this, he's God. And, and to me it's silly, to, well, well, I'm glad there's a way, there is one way. I'm not upset that there's only one way, I'm glad there is a way. God made a way and guess what? He gets to decide that. He's God. He's the one that we've sinned against. If he says, this is the one way to approach me, then th even if it's narrow, that's the way that we approach him. And if we want to be accepted in his sight, we must come on his terms. And it seems that God saw, though they were both giving an offering, they were both doing a religious thing, but God saw what was in their hearts. And so important to realize that. God's not just looking for religious observances. The Bible tells us, that God says, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And we can go, they're, they're both going through an act of worship and a religious observance. They're both bringing an offering. But God saw what was happening in their hearts. And he saw in Abel's heart that there was faith. Faith towards the word of God. This is the way God prescribes for us to come. Abel, I believe that by faith I will approach God in the right way. And his faith was in the right place where it seems that Cain's heart was in a wrong place of pride and, and seems kind of a rebellious attitude. And, and as a result, verse 5, look, it says Cain was very angry. Somehow he realized that Abel's offering was accepted maybe fire came down and consumed the offering where his was left there somehow there's a clear recognition and Cain is very angry and his countenance fell so he gets upset he's mad this isn't right how come I can't come on my own terms and he begins to actually get upset and the Lord who you would think would be rather stern with him instead is very patient and compassionate with him here he is trying to play God rather than be submitted to God. And verse 6 says, The Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? You know, maybe that's a good question the Lord's asking you tonight. Why are you angry? Do you really have a right to be angry? Aren't I God? Isn't it amazing how sometimes we get angry over certain things things don't pan out the way we want or or, or we want things to we have this plan and this course and therefore we, and, and it, it doesn't go that way or god says no it's going to go this way and then we get angry and god sort of lovingly and subtly says to us why are you angry i'm god do you really have a right to be angry at me and he says to Cain, why are you angry and why why is your countenance falling? The idea is he's bummed out, he's upset. God says to him, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Again, it wasn't as if the door was closed. God says to him, look, Cain, if you do well, the idea is according to the word of God. If you submit to what I've asked and you in faith obediently come the way. If you, if you do what's right, he says, you'll be accepted. All I'm asking is for you to have a submitted heart. I'm not trying to show partiality here. He just simply says, you must be willing to submit. You have to be willing to humble yourself and approach me in humility and in faith and obedience the way that you should, according to my word. If you do well, he says, will you not be accepted? Notice, and if you do not do well, in other words, if you choose to remain stubborn and disobedient and proud, if you choose that route, he says, notice, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Interesting. First time the word sin shows up in the Bible. 
First time the word sin shows up in the Bible here, and it's described, notice, he says, sin lies at the door. In other words, if you don't come in faith, and you don't come with a submitted heart, not being stiff-necked and stubborn, he says, when you don't come the way I ask you to, and let me be God and you be the submitted servant, then he says, sin is lying at the door. You're right on the border of sin, he says, and it's lying at the door. And notice, sin isn't a passive thing. He says, sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The indication there, sin is lusting or longing after you. And, and that natural inclination, these two young men, they were born morally depraved. They were born sinful by nature, as we all are. And because of that, their natural inclination is not to do well. But their natural inclination is to do wrong. And he says, Cain, you need to realize your natural bent is to go towards sin. sin. The doorway of sin is always cracked open, ready for you to walk right through it as an opportunity. And he says, sin is desiring to rule over you. It wants to control you. And he says, but you must, interesting, he says, you should rule over it. Very interesting, because when we get into the New Testament, this is what New Testament Christianity teaches. Not only did Jesus pay for the penalty of our sin when he died on the cross, but it also teaches that Jesus broke the power of sin when he died upon the cross. You know, read chapters like Romans 6 and 7 and 8, and where Paul says, you know, that sin shall not have dominion over you. In other words, the born-again Christian has not only been set free from the penalty of sin, but by the living presence of the Spirit of Christ within us, the power of sin, the Bible teaches, this is our position by faith and conversion, that the power of sin has been broken over our life. Paul says that we can walk in newness of life. That, you know, sin's like, like gravity. You know, it's a weight that's pushing down upon us. And the only way to overcome gravity is how? is you need a stronger force than gravity to overcome it. How does a rocket, you know, launch up? It, it overcomes the power of gravity. How? By a stronger power that overcomes the... Now, does, does the law of gravity go away? Still there, right? It, it just, it's just something's overpowering it. And same way, the law of sin and death, the Bible says, it's in us and it's weighing down on us and it's trying to rule over us and keep us in bondage. But yet the Bible teaches that the power of Jesus Christ has broken the power of the law of sin and death. And therefore there's a greater law, the law of the spirit of life, the Bible says, that sets us free and enables us to walk in victory. And how interesting to see that from the very beginning, this was the reality already being pointed out. That this is what sin does. It's not just you know, our mistakes, but sin is actually a power that wants to rule over our lives and dominate us. But God's heart is that we would rule over it. That we would walk in victory. God wants us to overcome. Not sin to rule us, but us to rule over our sin nature. And though the temptations are there and the struggles are there, that we would walk in the victory that Jesus supplies to us through faith. So hear the warning. Cain, God's offering him an opportunity. Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But he says, be careful. Sin lies at the door. It's like, like a lion there crouching, ready to pounce. And he says, and it's, it's desiring you. It wants to rule over you, but you should rule over it. Verse 8, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, what did they talk about? How long did they talk about it? The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Abel is mentioned as a prophet. So potentially, Abel, in his prophetic gift, was talking even to his brother Cain, saying, listen, you, you know that there's a right way to approach God. I mean, you, mom and dad have talked to us about this, and, and, and God's revealed to us as a family there's a right way to worship, and, and we must come to God in humility and on his terms. And respect his authority over our lives. And potentially that was irritating all the more Cain. Again, how long did they talk about it? How long was there between this event in the prior verses and this actual murder that takes place? We don't know. But this dialogue takes place. And at a certain point, Cain becomes so incensed over the righteousness of his brother and his own stubbornness and his sinful condition at this time that it literally says he rose up against his brother and he killed him. So here's the first murder in the Bible. 
the first breakdown of family problems. And it didn't take long for it to get a dysfunctional family, did it? Four chapters in. One chapter, sin enters the world. The first family, guess what? Is dysfunctional. Already. Dysfunctional family. You know, don't be discouraged. You know, every single one of us, to some extent, lives in a dysfunctional family. Oh, you know what I'm saying? I came from a dysfunctional family. That's as old as Genesis chapter 4. The first family was a dysfunctional family. Hopefully, in your family, nobody's murdered anybody. We got siblings killing each other at this point in cold blood. First two kids, the first blood ever shed in the Bible. It tells us in 1 John 3, 11 and 12, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, it says, Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brother's works, it says, were righteous. So again, what it was is the testimony of Abel's righteous life so irritated Cain that he decided to snuff him out because it was the testimony of his righteous life that was a light that always shined on the darkness in his life, and therefore he wanted to get rid of it and eradicate it. And see, that is always the case. The unrighteous, the one living in evil, the, the sector of society that, that is living in evil doesn't like the presence of righteous people because it testifies to them of their wrongdoing. And it testifies to them that it is possible to live right and moral and righteous. And it's a constant reminder to them, no, there is a way that you can live differently and you're choosing to live evil. You're choosing to live wrong. So therefore, just like Cain, the Bible says in Jude, the way of Cain, many a times because of that, people in the, 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 the way of Cain, they want to get rid of the righteous. They want to silence righteous people and they want to persecute and eliminate those who would represent Christ or speak of what the truth of God's word says because of what it testifies and it bothers them. And here Cain snuffs out his brother's life, kills him in cold blood. And the Lord said to Cain, verse 9, where is Abel your brother? Again, God's not asking for information purposes as if he doesn't know. He asked him, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. And look at this, almost the sassiness of this guy. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> That's not what you would expect when God is asking you, where is your brother, knowing that you just murdered your brother in cold blood. So it shows you where this guy's heart's at. Do you see what I'm saying? Again, God's not asking because he lacks information. He's not trying to obtain the whereabouts like a you know, a, a ancient FBI agent here, so where is he? You know, I know you killed him, where'd you put him? God know what's God doing? Just like in Genesis chapter three, as soon as Adam fell into sin and he was hiding and God said, Where are you? And we said that it wasn't as if God was trying to figure out which tree was hiding behind. It wasn't an issue of trying to obtain information. It was trying to obtain a confession. God was trying to give an opportunity to Adam, and now God's trying to give an opportunity to Cain. Here you go, Cain. Would you confess what you did? I'm giving you an opportunity to take ownership for what you did. Where's your brother? What happened? He's giving him a chance for repentance. God in his graciousness, though he's done something horrendous, is still in love reaching out to him, trying to give him a chance to confess, to take ownership and to repent of what he has just done. But instead, he gets this prideful and quite brazen, arrogant attitude. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, you are. Especially in the New Testament, the Bible teaches we are our brother's keeper. That we are one in the body of Christ. And, and that when one member suffers, we should all suffer. And, and that we should share and bear one another's burdens. And that we well, hey, that's his problem. No, it's our problem. If he's got a problem, we've got a problem. That's what the New Testament teaches. That we're to be unified in Christ. But again, outside of that, again, this hard-heartedness. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10 and he said, what have you done? Again, trying to get him to acknowledge his error. And then God says, interesting, verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. First time the word blood shows up in the Bible. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. Again, God's indicating that life is sacred to him. 
Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God says, look, you have just murdered a human being created in my image and my likeness. And God says the bloodshed, the innocent bloodshed that you have committed by murdering the life of an innocent human being created in my image, God says that cries out to me. It speaks something to me of defiance and of your diminishing the value and the importance of a human life. Interesting, the first time we find blood in the Bible, it speaks of blood testifying or speaking something, and specifically speaking something to God. When we go over into the New Testament, Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and it says, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Interesting. The next time we hear Abel attached to something in, in the book of Hebrews, it speaks of the blood of Jesus. It says that speaks of better things. The blood of Jesus that was shed, his innocent blood, that testifies and speaks something to God as well. It speaks to God righteousness. It speaks to God forgiveness, atonement. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Even sins of things doing things as wretched as murdering someone in cold blood as maybe murdering a baby in the womb and having an abortion and, and these things that, that really weigh heavily on us. You know, we, we've all maybe done some things or maybe you know individuals that there are certain things. I you know, know a few people who were involved in a few wars or in Vietnam who struggled deeply, deeply with being able to, to understand and comprehend how could I be forgiven. You don't understand what I did. I know someone who I used to pastor the church where I was at who one of his assignments when he was in Vietnam is, is he literally sat on the side of a river and he was told anything that comes down that river that moves kill it. He said, he said I used, you know, with a machine gun, he said, I used to shoot seven-year-old kids, eight-year-old girls. Whatever went down the river, I was supposed to just kill it. He was submitting to orders. But you tell me how to work through that in your conscience. That you were killing and killing and killing and, 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 and to struggle with that. In the same way people struggle with the guilt of things like abortion. But listen, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin. It speaks of better things. And it can speak to us, listen, you are clean. You're washed. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is erased because that blood speaks a powerful thing, that blood of Jesus, even as this blood did in that very day in the opposite way. Verse 11, God tells him, So now, Cain, he says, You are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, he says, It shall no longer yield its strength to you. So again, he would struggle now. The ground wouldn't cooperate and it would be difficult. Again, sin always brings difficulty and consequences. And now as he would work the land as a farmer, he says the ground's not going to cooperate. You're going to struggle as a consequence of what you've done. A fugitive and a vagabond, God says, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment, he says, is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So look how Cain responds. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Interesting. All this guy seems to care about is the punishment he's going to have to deal with. What about confession? What about repentance? What about God? What I've done is wrong. And I want to admit it's wrong. And God, I want to make it right. And I want to get right with you. Always, oh, I can't. Do it. I don't want to be punished. The punishment's too much. Just like so many people, he doesn't want to take responsibility for the, for, for the consequences of his sin. He just wants to cry about the punishment. This isn't fair. Why does this have to happen? Why do I have to deal with punishment now? You know, it shows you there's no repentance in his heart. That there's no true contrition or brokenness. All he's concerned about is, is uh, I don't want to have to deal with any punishment or consequences. Can't we just forget this? Can't we, can't we just... No, you need to take ownership and get right before God first. And all he's concerned about is his punishment and what he's going to have to deal with for what he's done. He says, Lord, you've driven me out and whoever finds me now... On the earth, he says, is going to kill me, which shows that there was obviously a, a population at this time beginning to form 
on the earth. Again, we need to remember, we don't know at what point this interaction and murder happened between these two brothers. Genesis 5 is going to say that Adam and Eve were having many sons and daughters. So the earth is beginning to be populated at this time, and he's afraid that one of his relatives, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, knowing who Cain is and what he did as God drove him out, he says, they're going to chase me down, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, verse 15, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, and we don't know what that mark is, your guess is as good as mine, the Lord set some mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Verse 16, to me this is a sad verse. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. You see the language of verse 16? Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He, he walked away from the presence of the Lord in his stubbornness. In his condition of being stiff-necked, he walked away from the presence of the Lord. He began to leave God. God wasn't abandoning him. You look through this chapter, God is trying to reach out. God, I mean, think of what this guy did. God could have smoked him instantly. God, God could have radically dealt very severely with him and just judged him on the spot. You know, God's going to say, alone, you know, whoever sheds man's blood, by, by, by man his blood should be shed. God could have just instantly, people have died in the scriptures for seemingly less, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, they dropped dead for, for telling a lie and being hypocrites. This guy murdered his own brother, murdered his own brother. And what's God doing? God's reaching out to him, reaching out to him, reaching out to him, reaching out to him. But tragically, you see where his heart is. He continues to be rebellious and stubborn and stiff-necked. And now it says he just, he went out. He went away, walked away from the presence of the Lord and went and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And that's not the same Enoch that we'll see in Genesis chapter 5. And he built a city and called the name of the city after his son Enoch. Now, I know everybody on occasion wonders, where did Cain get his wife? And you know, truth of the matter is, I don't know where Cain got his wife. I would encourage you, if you are interested, uh, I believe it's Henry Morrison and his commentary. This guy's a, a scientist, and he's written a, uh, a commentary. It's a rather thick, lengthy commentary on Genesis. I have it in my office. But he even did some scientific and mathematical calculations. Again, remember at this point the longevity of life, and people were living hundreds of years. So what he does is he calculates out, the, again, the reality of people living in such long periods of time and, and, and calculates that conservatively by this point, there could be upwards to a hundred, over 100,000 people on the earth. Considering the fact that if Adam and Eve, as it says, continued to have sons and daughters, and then as Cain came to mature age, and they took you know, wives to themselves, and you have the continual multiplication of humanity, and you go, well, wait a minute, that's, that's weird, how can that happen? You know, Brothers and sisters get married, and cousins, and aunts and uncles. Well, again, we also need to remember the gene pool at this time is extremely pure. You don't have the issue with dominant and recessive genes and all the problems. Does God in the law later on forbid relatives to marry? Yes, he does. As the gene pool becomes more defiled and down the road eventually, years from now, God will in the Mosaic law say that relatives can't get married. But initially it seems that it was something that it didn't cause harmful birth defects and problems, so he married someone, a relative, a cousin, a, a distant you know, niece, a sister, I don't know. He obviously took a wife, and truly, why are you worried about somebody else's wife? Right? Just worry about your own. That's enough. Challenges. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methusahel, just running out of creativity for names there, and Methusahel begot Lamech, and then Lamech took for himself two wives. So the first entrance already of bigamy. See how quickly, when sin enters the picture, things are breaking down. Murder, family problems, already now going outside of the boundaries in these first few generations of humanity. Lamech takes two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So, 
apparently his family took to things like raising cattle. Uh, here I think you have kind of the first indications of business activity, those who dwell in tents and who have livestock. So you have cattle raising and, and some of the first business activities taking place. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. So here you have a family that seemed to have an inclination towards the arts and towards music. Again, we need to remember as we look back at the ancient culture, these people were not the way that we perceive, you know, Captain Caveman, you know, and, you know, hitting people over the head and dragging away. I mean, these people were ingenious. They were, this is prior to the flood even. And already you see that they're, you know, inventing and creating things, a harp, you know, a, a, a stringed instrument, a flute, a wind-type instrument, arts and music being introduced already. Already these things being introduced into civilization. Verse 22, And as for Zillah, she bore Tubal Cain, and he was an instructor, notice, of every craftsman in bronze and iron, so metallurgy. And here you have the first sort of skilled laborers, people who have a mechanical inclination who have the ability to work with metals and, and bronze and iron and, and craftsmanship, who have these kind of gifts. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. And then Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. You know, and they're thinking, what in the world is that? He says, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me, and if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So it seems that some event took place where Lamech found himself needing to, in self-defense, some younger man came and attacked him, and you know it's kind of a almost seems a little bit boastful, sort of justifying. What you look, if Cain will be avenged, if anybody hurts him. If anybody tries to come after me for in self-defense killing this young man, he says, then they're going to struggle and be taking vengeance again 77-fold. And he's sort of boasting, again, we have more murder taking place and just the violence of humanity as sin has entered into the picture. It helps us to understand why when we get over to Genesis chapter 6, that it tells us that violence has abounded and that all flesh had corrupted its way. Do you see how quickly... When sin infiltrates the society, how quickly things are deteriorating. And verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, which means literally appointed or an appointed one. And she said, as she bore him, For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, who Cain killed. And again, you can see by her language there, God has appointed another seed. Seed reminds us of Genesis 3.15 that the woman's seed, remember, would crush the head of the serpent, the authority of the serpent, that she believed in faith that God was bringing a promised Messiah, that through you know, the, the giving of birth of a woman that ultimately God would bring a seed to deal with the sins of humanity ultimately. And now it's through the line of Seth. Of course, we'll see in Genesis 5 that's where that comes from. So she names him appointed, God's replaced. Interesting, what the devil tried to destroy, she says God has appointed a replacement. I love this. Because again, as we read in some of those connecting verses, 1 John 3, it says that Cain, who was of the wicked one, murdered his brother. Again, Cain, who was living in sin, living in rebellion, and apparently was being directed by the wicked one, and who tried to destroy what? The messianic line. Cain, who comes on the scene being directed by the promptings of the devil, and that will always be the devil's effort to try and destroy and diminish the line of Jesus Christ to destroy salvation. And the devil always tries to come in and destroy and corrupt the good thing that God is doing. The wonderful thing is even when the devil distorts something and destroys it and ruins it is, is that God's in the business of appointing a replacement instead. 
How wonderful. The Bible says that God restores the years that the locusts have eaten away. And when the devil tries to destroy something and ruin it, God can replace it. God's able to do that. I'm so thankful that he can do that. And from the very beginning, we see God doing that. God's appointed another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. The devil tried to ruin things. God appointed a replacement. In verse 26, as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and they named his name Enosh. And then this interesting phrase at the end of verse 26. And then it says, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, what does that refer to? Certainly, I think people were calling upon the name of the Lord, praying and worshiping before that. This could be an inference to at that time in history, men began to collectively come together corporately and to call upon the name of the Lord. I don't know. It can't be dogmatic. Take one little phrase and try and make it fit into something. I think people were praying and worshiping God prior to this time. I think Adam and Eve were. You see Cain and Abel both approaching God. But there's an indication that at this point something began. It says, and then at the birth of Enosh, at that point historically, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Maybe a first indication of kind of corporately coming together and joining together and calling on the Lord together, bringing together one voice, bringing together one heart, not individual worship, but coming collectively, which of course ultimately is God's plan. We're individual children of God, absolutely. Do you need to have an individual relationship with Jesus Christ? Most certainly. You need to have an individual relationship with Christ. You need to choose like Abel, to come on God's terms and by faith embrace Jesus as your Savior. But listen, let us never forget that the Bible teaches that we also are a part of the body of Christ and that we're supposed to call on the name of the Lord together with other people. We're not to be isolated, independent, solo Christians. That's not God's intention. The Bible teaches that we're individually members of one another. I have an individual relationship with Jesus. You have an individual relationship with Jesus. But guess what? I can't function in a healthy spiritual way without you. I need you. I need the body of Christ and the mutual encouragement and the distinct different gifts that we have as we collectively come together. And when we begin to isolate ourselves, that's one of the tactics of the devil to diminish us spiritually and to destroy us ultimately in our spiritual lives. We need to come together. Hebrews 10 says, let us not neglect the assembling of ourselves together, but all the more as we see the day approaching.